Well, we've spent several months now looking at themes of the church, various themes of the church. Over the summer, we looked at the faith of the church. We looked at the treasure of the church. And for the month of October, we're going to continue with this theme and spend some time looking at the habits of the church. One of the gifts of following the lectionary is every week we have four different readings from four different parts of the Bible. It is customary to preach from the gospel reading. That's kind of our default habit. And yet it's very good from time to time to mix things up and hear from others other parts of the scriptures as well. And so for all of October, we're going to sit with our epistle reading from 2 Timothy. We're going to work through the whole of the letter. It's one of the fun things about these shorter letters is we can get through entire books of the Bible as a community on a Sunday. 2 Timothy is what's commonly called a, a part of the pastoral epistles along with 1 Timothy and Titus. And in these three books, you really see Paul, a different side of Paul. You see Paul living into his pastoral leadership, talking about the lived experience of the Christian faith, wanting them to live into not just what they think or believe and profess, but how those beliefs are embodied in very real and practical ways. I think for much of my life, much of my Christian faith was really centered almost exclusively on what we believe. And so if something was amiss in my spiritual life, I assumed it it was because I had a wrong belief that I needed to work through. And that could have been the case, probably was the case. But Paul wants us to see that's not exclusively what's going on. Yes, belief and what we profess deeply matters. And yet he's also concerned with how those professions are embodied, how they're lived out in very real, tangible ways. I've spent the last few years finishing up a degree in the field called catechesis, which is a big church word. We might use a simpler word like discipleship. But catechesis is a helpful word. It's a word that literally means to sound down or to send down. And so it's this idea of passing on the faith. One of my tutors said that catechesis is faith to live by and the way to live by it. And it's always stuck with me because I think we do one or the other. We kind of talk about this is the content of faith. And if you just know that, you'll live a good, robust Christian life. And we miss how we live it out. On the other hand, it's all about what are the things that we do? How? How do we live? How do we embody this and spend less time on what is the content of our faith? Faith and practice are meant to go hand in hand. These are meant to go together. And Paul wants us to see that, I think, in a really profound way. I learned this this week. I wasn't aware of this. Second Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote, not chronologically as it we find it in our Bibles, but it's him writing just a few years before his death. It's a bit of like a farewell discourse. Knowing his end is likely coming, he's having his final words, the final things he wants to pass on as a pastor, and really to us then, his final thoughts on what it means to live a Christian life. And so really just two things I want to say today that I really see in this story, and we'll walk through them. The first is this. I think he wants us to see that the Christian faith is rooted in tradition and is passed down as a gift. The Christian faith is rooted in tradition and is passed down as a gift. As I thought on this, I thought of my own life. I grew up here in Georgia. My dad's from Georgia. My mom is from Texas. And what that meant is that I grew up in an expat family. And my mother, any chance she could, would remind us that we children were being raised in a strange and foreign land. away from our homeland, away from the motherland. And she did this in a variety of ways. We were told the stories of her homeland. We were, uh, every room had some article of, of faith, you could say, whether the flag or 
cowboy boots, songs we were taught. I mean, all the way through my childhood, we were taught about her homeland. And here's the thing. It wasn't just taught about. We embodied this belief as well. And so she, uh, we, we made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We would, we would go and see the Alamo. And this was a significant moment in my childhood. We finally see it. We, every year, we would, uh, we would make a pilgrimage to Houston to see extended family, embedding and deepening in us this sense in which this is where you're from. These are your people. This is your true home. And I say that to say, I think there's something to this, that idea when you read Paul's letter, because Paul is saying a very familial story. He's telling us a very familiar, familial story that faith and identity is passed on through a story that's connected to certain practices. And it's a family practice. Paul really speaks to the universal family and then very particular families in what we just read as well. So universally, if you're following along in verse three, he says, I'm grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. And Paul there is thinking all the way back to his Jewish roots, to the Jewish faith of Abraham that he received, that his ancestors have passed down from generation to generation. And for the Jewish people then and now, what was central to their faith is remembering and passing on to your children. Those are the two things faithful Jews are meant to do. Remember where they've come from and pass that story on to their descendants. Think famously of Deuteronomy 6, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. As an aside, I would just say that verse, believe it or not, is largely what animates why we do what we do as a church plant here on the north side. Things like liturgy. Liturgy isn't for us uh, just something that we added because we're into it or I'm into it and expect you to be into it or because we were tired of whatever else we were doing. So we thought, let's try this out and experiment on you and see how it goes. None of that is true. What we wanted to do is to say, how do we receive a story, a story that isn't just a decade old? Or two decades old? How do we embody a faith in such a way that even the things that we do connect us to a faith that is thousands of years old? Where early Christians from the first centuries of the faith, if they showed up in this church building tonight, they wouldn't understand English, but they would know that they're with family. They would know that this is a Christian service. And I think that's beautiful. It's profoundly beautiful that we are a part of an unbroken chain of witness all the way back to Jesus and the disciples. So there's this universal dimension. But every time we speak of a universal faith, there's also a practical embodied reality where we find this in the actual lives of people we know and love. And Paul points that out as well. So in verse 5, he goes from his ancestors way back when to people that were known to him and to Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. This long, beautiful, ancient faith that's come all the way down is now for Timothy embodied in very real people that he knew well. His grandmother Lois embodied the faith, knew the faith, passed it on to her daughter Eunice. Eunice embodied this in such a way that it, for Timothy, became a founding part of his life, foundational to how he viewed the world and his place in it. 
I would say this, I imagine for all of us in this room, if you think of how you came to faith, some version of this story is likely very similar. If you came to faith as a child, it's probably because you had faithful parents or grandparents who imparted this faith to you in very personalized, very personal ways. Um, Even if you came to faith later in life, if you came to faith as an adult, you didn't come from a Christian family, I would still wager that it was through a personal relationship, that it was someone you knew personally. Now, you may have read your way into faith. It may have been a miraculous intervention. I'm not counting that out. God can work in a variety of ways, but the normal way that God works throughout history is through people that we know, either our immediate family or people who we know and trust and love us and invite us into the faith or to consider the faith. A scholar called Joseph Atkinson says the family is the carrier of God's covenant. I really like that phrase. Families carry God's covenant. God's promises throughout the generations, the way they pass from one to another is they're carried by families, biological families, but also Christian families to which we belong. We carry this story with us and we pass that on. And so I think that's part of our job as human beings for us to receive this story, to receive these promises and to then pass them on as well. If you are a parent here, if you're a parent of little ones, which I know many of you are, not all, but many of you are parents, especially of ones who are still at home, I would say that this idea is not meant to be a source of stress or anxiety for you. Often when I hear this sort of language, it can be very stressful. It is for me to think, gosh, that's a huge responsibility to pass the whole of the faith on to these children in my home that I can barely keep fed and alive, let alone deeply formed in the Christian faith. And just for the person up here wearing the collar to you, like I'm not immune from this. Most of the time when I try and pray with my kids in the evening or in the morning, half the time mid prayer, I'm cutting it off to grab a kid, stopping them from hitting their sibling, from running out the other room. I say, stop, come back in here. We're having a holy moment. This is a whole, we are praying as a family and you're going to enjoy it. Like these are the, the normative experiences of faith in our home. And yet this is what we're called to, to pass this on. And I would say this, there's maybe some comfort in this more than whatever you and I say to our kids, more than whatever punishments we can think up, more than whatever uh, incentive we dangle in front of them. What they hear from us is the life we actually live the things that we embody in our own lived experience. And so if you want a child who loves the Lord and who prays and is patient and kind and long-suffering, my best advice to you is to be someone who prays and loves the Lord and is striving to be patient and kind and long-suffering. And I would say this, if you do not have biological children, you're not off the hook either. Because the church needs mothers and fathers. The church needs you to see the potential in your own life to be a mother and a father through whom you inspire others. You are a parent to people in this community who need you to embody this faith in such a lived way that it inspires their own life of faith. This is what Timothy had. This is what Paul was to Timothy. Not a biological parent, but a parent to Timothy. This is the faith we're called to, but we have to care for it. We have to tend to it. We have to nurture this way of life. And that's Paul's second big point. And that's where we'll focus the rest of the time. Secondly, Paul simply says this, the gift of faith has to be nurtured and sustained. Look at verses six and seven. After talking about this heritage of faith, this faith that's passed on through families from one generation to the next, what does he say? 
To Timothy, he says, rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. On first glance, you could read those words and think, Paul's really laying into Timothy. What is, what is going on with Timothy? Is he a wayward son? Has he forgotten who he is? And I don't think either one of those is the case. Timothy was a significant leader in the church. He is Saint Timothy for good reason. Likely, the laying on of hands that Paul is speaking to was Timothy's ordination. Timothy is a set-apart leader in the church. Paul's not calling him out for running away from the faith at all. However, I think even those who know the Lord, have maybe known the Lord their whole life, find themselves in seasons in which the faith needs to be rekindled. Some of us, that may be exactly where we find ourselves tonight. Maybe have walked with the Lord for a long time, wouldn't consider yourself a wayward child, and yet need to have your faith rekindled. I really love that word, rekindled. is a beautiful, beautiful word. It's about a month late, but fall weather has finally come. One of our favorite things to do this time of year is to have a fire in the backyard. We start it when the sun's still out. We enjoy a meal together and spend the evening watching the fire slowly burn out as the sun goes down. And it's a wonderful way to spend an evening. And yet throughout the evening, while we're cooking food or hanging out with friends, we have to kindle that fire. You have to give it oxygen. You have to give it more wood. And at some point, the saddest part of the evening is when you stop feeding the fire, when you don't put that extra log on and you decide this is where it shifts. And now the evening is headed towards a close and the fire begins to slowly die. Fire in the Bible is one of the most powerful images of the spiritual life. Not just the spiritual life. One of the most powerful images of God's nearness, of the presence of God. Think of, of the burning bush speaking, God speaking through this bush to Moses. Think of the fire on Mount Bethel that consumes Elijah's offering. Think of the tongues of fire on the apostles that fall at Pentecost. Fire is a significant image. You could say the whole of the spiritual life is for us learning to be filled with the fire of God, to have that kindled in us, to become all flame. It's a really powerful image. I think it's worth us asking where in our own lives does the fire of God need to be rekindled? Where have we neglected the fire of God? Where is it threatening to burn out? And if you're honest, there's probably different answers to that. If you're honest, maybe this feels truly foreign. In your heart of hearts, you do not know the fire of God. You've been around church your whole life. You've been around Christians more than you can even uh, care to admit. And yet you do not know the fire of God. Maybe you knew it once, but like a backyard fire that's almost on the edge of burning out, that's where you find yourself clinging to faith by a thread with a little bit of hope that's left. But for whatever reason it may be, maybe someone who represents God in some way has wounded or hurt you deeply. Maybe you've lived with unanswered prayers, prayers that you've poured out to God and felt like he hasn't heard them. And so you find yourself here just hanging by a thread saying, I once had a fiery faith, but I don't know where I'm at now. One of the things I love about Paul Paul is not a a stranger to those feelings. If that's where you find yourself, Paul's a good friend to you. Paul's a really good friend to you. Paul wrote this letter. He didn't know this exactly at the time. I think he knew it was coming soon, but he wrote this letter about two or three years before he died. He's in prison. The second time he's been in prison in Rome, writing to Timothy. In this letter later on, if you read all the way through it, you see he talks about people that he loved dearly, that he thought were closest to him, that have abandoned him. He feels abandoned in his greatest time of need. 
I think he's very clear with Timothy that this rekindling is not an abstract thing for him, that Paul has had to learn what it means to rekindle and tend to the fire of faith in the face of very real pain and adversity. So he's not just writing from an ivory tower these theological ideas that he says for us to work out. He wrote these words from prison, facing his death, feeling abandoned by everyone he knew and loved. That's why he can say to Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel. And yet he has so much hope, so much faith still. Verse 12, he says, I'm not ashamed. I know the one in whom I have put my trust. I'm sure he's able to guard until the day, that day, what I have entrusted to him. Paul very simply has hope and joy in the face of pain and suffering because he's clear on who God is. I know the one in whom I have put my trust. And I think that's all that God asks of us as well, ultimately, that we would fully put our trust in him and see him as he is, believing that he can sustain us. The fire of God that we need to rekindle is not something you and I can manipulate. You you and I can't just snap our fingers and call this down, but we can place ourselves in channels, in streams where God promises to show up, where he says, this is where you can expect to find me. I think of a pastor who compared it to a a suntan. He said, you and I do not control or create or manipulate the sun in any way whatsoever. And yet, if you want to receive a suntan, there are two things you can do. You can stay in the comfort of the air conditioning and stay inside and hope for the best. Or you can put on your swimsuit and go out to the beach and sit out in the sun. One of those has a much higher chance of receiving a suntan than the other. It's not controlling or manipulating the sun, but it is saying I'm going to place myself in a place where it is far more likely that I will, in fact, encounter the sun. And I think that's a word for us here as well. If we talk about rekindling the fire of faith, there are places you and I can go where it is far more likely that that fire might be rekindled by God. Or we can stay at arm's length, stay inside in the air conditioning away from the sun and say, well, if God wants me, he knows where to find me. He can come sort it out in his time as he does in his way. I don't think that's what Paul wants of us. He wants us to press out in bold ways. And so as we wrap up, I'll, I'll give you three ways. If you came to the daily office retreat, we talked about this. Three primary ways, I believe, for us as Anglicans, but not just Anglicans, but Christians for a long time have said, these are three, not the only three, but three primary ways we can say, this is where we can expect God to meet us. This is a place I can step into and say, here's where I, I am hoping to encounter God and for him to fan the fire into flame. The first is this, personal devotion. Personal devotion, where you and I cultivate a daily habit of looking for God in the holy, ordinary stuff of daily life. That we actually have eyes to see God is real and at work in my life and might actually be orchestrating and moving in ways that if I have eyes to see, I could encounter him in a new way, in a profound way. These usually are situations in which we could just as easily blink and miss it. And yet we have to pray and cultivate an ability to see God at work. I'll give you an example from this week. Monday morning, I was still jet lagged, getting caught up, went to the cemetery to pray. On a tiny back road with no other cars in sight, I tried to turn around because the sun was in my eyes and I didn't want that. So I turned around, backed about a foot into the dirt and pulled forward, and I pulled my entire bumper off of my car. (laughs) Didn't hit anything. It was the weirdest thing I've ever done. It was not my finest moment. (laughs) 
get out of my car and I'm just looking at it thinking, this is ridiculous. So I put it in my back seat through the window and I drove to a body shop. And they were like, yeah, it'll be $1,000. My whole car's worth like three grand. I was like, I'm not doing that. So I called my dad, as one does. And uh, he said, oh, I got a guy up here in Woodstock. He'll do it for like a hundred bucks. And he does. And so I drove up to Woodstock, way up into Woodstock, you know, the far and distant land. And yet my whole day that was meant to be writing a sermon, I'm now getting a new bumper that I didn't even want a day before. And yet, drop my car off, have a day to kill while they're working on my car, go to my parents' house, because it's just around the corner. Haven't been in a while. No one's home, so I'm sitting in my parents' house working on this sermon. When my mother shows up with my grandmother, who has Alzheimer's and lives in a home I've not seen in, in almost a year's time. And yet, I sat and had lunch with her. And I told her I loved her, reminded her who I was. I hugged her sent her on with her day. It was a beautiful moment. It wasn't lost on me that as I'm sitting writing a sermon about a grandmother who passes her faith on to her grandchild, in walks my grandmother. You could say, this is all coincidence. You could say, oh, that's a sweet little story. I choose to believe that that's God breaking into the intimate details of my life in a powerful way. And I have to have eyes to see that and say, this is God at work fanning something good into flame in my life, namely a love and affection for my grandmother, a chance to speak love and and be near to her in her loneliness and her isolation. It was a tender moment. And yet I could have just as easily finished my lunch and said, I'm behind schedule. I need to get this car, get on with my day, get back to the city. And yet we do this every day. How many of those opportunities have I missed? Have you missed that we just rush through our day and, and pass right by? And so On the one hand, just cultivate an awareness to say God is speaking and at work. As we prayed in that beautiful collect today, God is far more willing and ready to speak than we are to listen. What a beautiful prayer that is. And by the way, the collect of the day is meant to be a collect for the week. And so you could pray that every day this week as maybe even a charge to say, God, I want to have those eyes to see and to hear you speaking because I'm so often not listening. Secondly, the daily office itself. This fall, we're praying the daily office. Daily office is a way in which Christian communities take seriously the charge to live under the word of God, to every morning and every evening commit themselves to reading scripture as a community. This is one of the primary ways God promises to be with his people and to speak to us. And so we want to take it seriously. And I would encourage you, pray with us in the morning and evening. Read the scriptures. They're on the Sunday flyer that you picked up on your way in. Read those daily as a way to hear from the Lord and ask him, would you speak to me through your word? So often we neglect the most basic of disciplines. Third, the third of this kind of three-part rule of life, personal devotion, daily office, and Sunday worship, what we're doing right here and right now. And hear my heart on this as I end a sermon telling you to come to church. In and of myself, I don't, I don't care if you come to church. I don't, I'm not asking for your money. I don't need your attendance. I do care about your soul. And I care as a father and a pastor in the faith, I care about the things you love and the things you desire. And when we come to church, we reshape and reorient the things we love the most. And Jesus promises when two or three gather in his name, he is in the midst of them. So this is a holy space, yet so easy for us to neglect this holy space. We say, I'll catch it next week. I'll listen to the podcast. I'll go watch the Falcons this week, which is a terrible decision. They're awful. Don't do it. This is a holy place where we come together and we say, we believe God is with us when we gather as his people. 
And it culminates in this meal. When we come to this table, it's a thin place where heaven and earth meet. So all the things we do that may feel dull or rote or boring, like the creeds and prayers and confessions, these are meant to remind us, as Paul says, of the God in whom we trust. This is the God we trust. This is the God we meet when we come to his table. And so I would just encourage you, take advantage of these basic channels of grace, these basic streams that we can enter into, not to manipulate God, but to believe that as we do, he wants to meet us. He's far more willing and eager to meet us than we often are to even hear him. If you're able, would you stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.